Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, uh, thank you, Brooke and Deirdre for sharing as well. If you are uh, joining us for the first time, or if you've been kind of in and out for several weeks here, we're in the midst of a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And the, the story thus far and, and where we are at here, we're kind of jumping back to the beginning of the story, but is a story of God's people. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of God's people unfolding through the Old Testament, God chose a people through Abraham to love and to cherish, to keep as his, and he gave them laws and commands through his servant Moses, like, like Nehemiah just referenced here, that if they follow those laws and commands, things will go well for them in the land, but they don't follow God's laws and commands, and instead they follow their own laws, and they create their own gods, and they, they disobey the Lord, and they go off into exile. They lose the very place that God had given them, and they go off into exile into Babylon for 70 years. And it's there that the word of the Lord comes to Nehemiah, and this word about Jerusalem comes to him, and he prays. Eventually, the Jews will be let back, and he's going to go back, and they're going to rebuild the city. And so all of this series and all this story has been about Nehemiah and Ezra going back to Jerusalem with Israel, and them rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, reestablishing the covenant, and trying to reestablish what God had promised to them. For the last few weeks, we've talked about just those foundations that they built the city upon, everyone doing their part. We talked a lot about overcoming that guilt and the shame so that we can do our parts and play the role in God's promises. So we're coming back to the very beginning of the, of the narrative, though, to point out or to bring back to our minds one of the more important aspects of this renewal effort that's going on there. And it's also important with every renewal aspect that goes on now, and it's, it's the role of prayer in this work of God and in the work of his renewal. Last week, we read Nehemiah's prayer as they're building the wall. It's helpful to look back and see that it was at the very beginning as well where we saw prayer as this response to what was going on. Because if, if you looked at those verses or you look at it again in your, in your handout, you know that Nehemiah's response is really striking. He hears about the city of Jerusalem. It's not a shock that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. He knows that. This has been 70 years. It's not like new news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. There's a reason he's in Babylon. But he hears this news that they hasn't been rebuilt. They haven't done anything in those 70 years. And that the people are being put to shame. And he remembers, he knows the word of the Lord. He knows God's promise to restore the people. That after the 70 years was up, they should be restored. God was going to bring them back and renew all of the promises and bring restoration to the people. So that's really the response. He hears this hasn't happened yet. But it should happen. If God's word is going to be true, if God's promises are true, then Israel should be restored, Jerusalem should be restored. And he prays and he fasts continually day and night. He fasts and prays to the Lord. And it's a tremendous prayer. But it really hits all the high points of what prayer should be. Right? It hits it, hits it all. It's got this honesty and confession on his part. It has this deep adoration and worship of God. It's a, there's an honest seeking and asking God to do something great. He prays not only for himself, but for his people, but also for the broader kingdom. I mean, it really, if you look at that prayer, it is, it's really profound and powerful. And I don't know if he prays that word for word every night and every morning as he's praying, 
But this is the summation of those prayers that he's offering up to the Lord continually for Israel. And when we hear prayers like this and we're reminded of this role of the prayer, because this prayer happens at the beginning of the story of them coming back, but like we saw last week, it happens throughout the story of them coming back. We're confronted by the role of prayer in gospel renewal where we have to see that it's at the very beginning of the efforts that are going on and it's going to sustain Israel's efforts through the middle of it. And it causes us then to really have to take a moment to look at prayer. And like we were talking about last week, you know, for many of us, prayer is thought of as, as a, something weird. I don't know, growing up, I grew up Christian, very Christian, <laughs> pretty religious home. And prayer was still difficult and weird for me too. Or you just don't know what it really is or how you should really pray. Or you hear people pray and you don't, who are they talking to? Do I expect it to, to, that I'm going to hear something back? I was always really skeptical of anybody who said they could hear back from God in the midst of prayer. But it's not just Christians who pray, right? I mean, this is all people have prayer at the center of their experiences. All religions have prayer at the very center of their religious experience. Even secular people have prayers in a lot of ways is the way the functioning of, of music or of poetry or these types of moments of meditation or solitude. Like, we all pray, but it's weird. And it's kind of hard to explain why it is that we pray and what the role of that prayer is. But as we see consistently through Scripture, uh, really from Genesis onwards, that prayer, it seems, is designed to be the vehicle that we are going to experience God through. The vehicle that God is going to do something in us through and do something through the world through. It, it doesn't seem like he's going to do it through anywhere else, but in prayer which would make sense why every people and every religion has prayer as such a foundational, fundamental thing. It's as if we were made to pray, or at least that we need it in our lives. There's no other way in which we will experience God, encounter the living God, and experience the change that he has for us and for the world except through prayer. As much as we would like it to come in different ways, because again, if you're anything like me, I really, I far more enjoy hearing about God and reading about God than I do praying to God. That comes more naturally. It's easier for me. I'd rather read about someone else's prayer life than engage in my own prayer life. Um, I'd rather read about him, hear about him, sit under George's sermons, right? I, I'd love that rather than me having to do the work of praying and actually speaking and receiving from him. I'd rather sing about God, right? A lot of us really in the Western religious experience and church experience has been built now around that. We, we've kind of shifted in a lot of ways. It used to be very word-centric in America, churches, that it was all about the sermon. Now it's really been shifting more towards the music. That's how I'm going to experience him. That's how I'm going to experience life-changing things. That's how I'm going to participate. But it's prayer. There's just no getting around it. From an experiential standpoint and from a scriptural standpoint, prayer is the way, the way that God has intended for us to actually come into God's presence and walk away changed and for the world to change. It's through prayer. And we see this throughout scripture and we see this throughout Ezra and Nehemiah and Nehemiah is a great example of this. And his dedication to prayer and the way that he prays really reflects what prayer should be 
and how it was designed for us as well. And you see a couple of things in his prayer and really in throughout all of the scripture through, or all the prayers through scripture. There's two things that really you can recognize. The people of God and Nehemiah here recognize their desperate need for God's power to show up in the story. Right? They desperately see, we can't do this. If we're going to restore the city of Jerusalem, if we're going to be God's people, I can't do it on our own. We can't do this. It's beyond our power, right? And that's consistent through these prayers, through these really kingdom strong prayers that you, through, that you see through Scripture. There's a recognition that I don't have the strength to do this. God does have the strength to do this. I'm going to pray to him because I can't do this. And then there's a crying out. There's a recognition of God's power to do something. And then there's a crying out and a recognition for God, a pleading for God to be who he said he was. That's true about all of these prayers as well. It's exactly what Nehemiah prays. He recognizes, he sees the covenant promise that God said he would restore the city of Jerusalem, restore the people. There's no way that's going to happen in their present circumstance. So God has got to intervene and do something. But then he also just appeals to God to be the God that God said he was. Right? There's a recognition in prayer and in these kingdom prayers that God is who he said he is. And I appeal to him to be the God that he said he was and that he's shown himself to be. That he's a covenant-keeping, restoring, redeeming, loving God who actually hears us and actually loves us. And what's so informative about these prayers through Scripture and about this one in Nehemiah is just how Nehemiah is able to recognize those two things going on at once. And it shows through his prayer that he's got, these, he's got a picture of God's plan and purpose that's huge, but also includes him. Right? It's not an either-or scenario where either it's God's got this huge plan for the world and for Israel, but he doesn't really care about me, or I'm just intimately trying to commune with God and have my personal relationship with him, but I don't know what his plan is for the world. It's both in Nehemiah's prayers. He doesn't just pray for himself or his people, but he does. And he, just, and he prays for himself that I will be successful when I go to the king. He prays for his people in exile. He prays for himself and his life right now. But he also prays for God's promises to be fulfilled, the word of God to be fulfilled for the kingdom. It's really similar to Jesus' prayers in the New Testament where it's this daily bread and for the kingdom of God to come. This both. But what's, you know, prayer is great and these pictures of prayer are phenomenal through scripture. But if you're anything like I am, I read these pictures of prayer or I am confronted by these prayers. You know, just pick the prayer. If it's a prayer of Moses, a prayer of Nehemiah, a prayer of Jesus, a prayer of Paul... They're powerful and they're profound. And I think, though, the more I think on them, the more bothered I feel because it doesn't seem like it's my prayer. And it doesn't match with my experiences of prayer or how I typically pray or how I feel prayer should be. I mean, there's a, I think that's one of the aspects where we, we have this desire to pray. Everyone's made to pray. It's, it's part of our DNA. But we also really struggle to do it. And we struggle to do it well. And that's not just a Christian issue. 
right, that's all across the board. It, 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 it seems like it sh- it's harder than it shouldn't, should be, right? Like our experience of prayer, it doesn't feel satisfying at times or we feel inconsistent with it. Usually prayers are haphazard or inconsistent. If we do pray, most of the time it's spurred on because of personal interest or need, right? I recognize that I need something and so I pray for that or the needs of other people. And so I ask for those things. It's what George refers to these types of prayers as maintenance prayers, this like ongoing daily maintenance of life. We pray for just kind of the, you know, the maintenance ongoing of me, right? Like my oil in my body will keep, you know, just this daily bread. Like I just keep praying for the people around me and myself and for life to just keep going. And those are good prayers. And historically, the church has been very, very good at those prayers and inspiring people to pray that way. You know, and usually when churches speak of like prayer warriors and the people in the church will pray for you, it's usually for those types of prayers, these maintenance prayers. And they keep a list. Here's all the people and all their issues, and I'm going to pray for them every day, or I'll pray for myself. And I've done these things too within my house church, listing everybody and praying for their needs, and I'm going to do it this week. I'm going to pray for everybody every day this week. And it's just this kind of daily maintenance prayers. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they feel not like this. And they, they don't feel as big. They don't feel as powerful as the prayers that I see through Scripture. Um, for others of us, and this too, Christianity has done a good job of inspiring people to pray very devotionally. Prayer is a devotional element in my life. It centers me. It makes me right. It's very similar to like meditation in a lot of other religions. It's like I need this quiet time with the Lord just to kind of drown out the voices and be kind of communing with the Lord so I can go on with my day. And historically, Christianity has done a good job of inspiring people to pray for those purposes too and those reasons. Or even very worshipful prayer. For many people, prayer and worship go very much together. They pray through song or they, it's, it's a very worshiping experience to pray. And that, that's good too. But it still doesn't seem to fit the biblical pictures of prayer that just keep coming up and these models of prayer that keep coming up. And it seems as if there's kind of a competition for prayer in my life. When I, when I try to decide how to pray, when to pray, look at the prayer, it's like, should I be praying for myself? Should I be praying for others? Should I pray for my neighborhood? Should I pray for the church? Should I pray for the world? You know, how, how much should I be praying for and how consistently should I be praying for these things? And, and, it, and, I, and you feel stretched. And so I usually just don't pray, right, because I feel that competition or I don't feel like I know even how to pray or all these things to pray. And I think as we look at prayer, as I look at it within us and I look at it within Christianity or the church today and just in general, I think there's two big reasons why we don't pray the way that we want to pray. Because I I think this is a common experience. Everybody wishes they could pray more (laughs) and better and more consistent and have these like kingdom prayers. I mean, everybody wants this, right? I mean, I want to walk away changed. I recognize that there are aspects of my heart and my life that need to be reordered. And I know that the only way to do this is going to be through prayer. I have people in my life who I love and care about, and I want their lives to reflect that change. And I know that the only way that's going to happen is through prayer. I want my neighborhood and the world to really experience Christ and the gospel, and I know that's going to happen through prayer. So we have these desires to pray, but 
we don't pray consistently or the way that we want to. And I think that there's two big hang-ups. I think the first is that we have too small a view of God's plans and purposes. We tend to think too smallly about what, or too, you know, we have a picture of God's plan, and it's very, very small, where it comes down to that we fundamentally don't think that God is doing anything or can do anything. Right? We kind of say, I don't see anything going on. Right? I mean, so why, why are we very inspired to pray for like gospel renewal in our city when I don't see it? Why, why, right, why, why pray for for the church to be established, for the work of the ministry to go forth with power. I don't see it happening very often. Or why should I be praying for certain things when I just don't, I don't think he's can, I don't think he's actually doing it. And I don't think he actually even could do it. Right? Like, it's just, it's an impossibility. Like, Twin Cities is never going to change. My neighborhood's going to never change. My neighbor's never going to change. This person in my family is never going to change anyway. You know, we have this very small view of God's power and his plans and his purposes where we want to narrow it down to God needs to act. He hasn't, look, he hasn't done anything that I've seen in the last five years. He's clearly not working. So I'm going to not, so I, I lose heart, right? I don't think about these things. I don't think about them in generational terms or in terms of decades or centuries or the way that God's plans and purposes are actually playing out in the world that it's not about me, it's not about my lifetime even, but I'm going to pray for these plans and these purposes that are huge. Or the other issue with that seeing God so small is, we, or we think that his plans and his purposes are so small that he's already accomplished them. I think this is the big danger, especially for us. George talked about this when we were starting this Ezra and Nehemiah series, that there's a real danger of being too easily satisfied with our daily life. God's done it. Praise the Lord. I've got it. He has provided for me. I have this wonderful family and this house and this life and this community. He's accomplished his plan and his purpose. I'm, he's done with me. And I can be content now and satisfied. I don't think he has anything bigger in store for me or my life. You know, this is probably about it. So now I'm just going to pray to maintain this because I like this. So I just want this to stay the same or as much the same as I can. And so that's why I think a lot of times within Christianity, we pray this type of maintenance prayers because we're really satisfied. We're genuinely pretty happy with our lives, and we don't think that God has anything bigger or greater in store for us than just what is right here. The other hang-up with, with praying this way, besides just having too small a view of God, is that we also have too small a view of God's love. That fundamentally, if I really think about what also prevents me from praying, I, I don't think he needs me to pray. Right? I, I've done this. I've rationalized this before in my mind, right? Like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, whether or not I pray. So I don't really need to pray. Right? He's just going to do stuff. Well, what I'm really saying, right, is that he doesn't need me. Or really what I'm saying, he doesn't want me to join him in his plans. I, I can't do any, I'm not, he wouldn't listen to me anyway. You know, my, I'm not at this level. I'm not one of those prayer warriors. I don't have everything put together. You know, he, he, God, you'd be better doing your plans and purposes without me involved. 
is really what I'm saying. You don't really want me to join you. You don't really care enough about me to hear me anyway or to listen to me. Ultimately, what prevents us from praying is that we just believe we don't need to do it. That it's not really a fundamental need in our life. I don't, God's going to do his work whether I pray or not. And I don't really even know what he's doing. So the best I can do is just keep praying for my daily needs to keep getting met so I can keep on living. It really reflects that either we believe that we're in control and doing fine or that God really doesn't care about us fundamentally. Which is why Christianity and the gospel is such good news for us. Because Jesus hits us right in that spot where I feel like, I, look, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I don't think you really know me or want me. And then we encounter Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, who the Bible claims him to be, who the church claims him to be, and he did the things that he did, well, now I know God's plan for this world. There's no mystery. If I know the gospel of Jesus Christ and I understand who Jesus is and I see what Jesus has done, I'm confronted by the huge nature of God's plans and his purposes. The gospel, what, what's happening in this world? If this is true, I know that God's plan for the world is full redemption, full reconciliation, restoring peace, that this whole world is going to experience peace one day, that Christ died to bring the peace, that he reconciled all things under heaven and earth, that Jesus holds all things together and is working all things. If this is true, right, I know that that's his plan. There's no mysteries about what's God doing in the world. I don't see him doing anything. That's not true. I do see him doing things. I see him do things in me, and I see him do things in others, and I know that he is reconciling and redeeming this whole world. And if Jesus is who he said he is, I also know that he hears me and that he cares for me and that he wants me. Right? That fundamental feeling that God doesn't really want me isn't true. Otherwise, he wouldn't have died for me. I mean, of course he wants me. Of course, he's brought me in to him, into his family. He's called me into these plans and purposes. Of course he wants me to pray. He's eager to answer my prayers. And I know that my prayers will be heard because Jesus' prayers went unanswered on the cross and in the garden. Because Jesus perfectly prays. He's the only person who's ever perfectly prayed. He makes Nehemiah's prayers not even look as good, close to as good. He perfectly understood the plans of the Father. He submitted himself. He lived himself. He lived and worked that plan. He earned access to the Father to ask anything. If anybody had access or anybody had earned the right to ask the king for access, for something, a request, it was Jesus. But he gave it up so that we would have that same access. His prayers went unanswered on the cross so that our prayers would always be answered. So if the gospel is true, this is why prayer within Christianity is different than the rest of the world. This is why we, we speak about this peace and hope, even though we may look very similar. Because because of the gospel, 
we get to pray. We have been given access to the Father. We've been given a picture and taste of God's plan for the entire world because of the resurrection. We know what the plan is. We know where this is all going. We know the ending of the story. We know who God is and what he is doing, and we know that he loves us. No matter what the circumstances or our feelings may be saying to us, you know, Ty, a lot of it's easy to be to give up hope in the midst of our feelings and our circumstances and to doubt that God loves us. But if the gospel is true, I know that He loves me because He died for me. And that prayer of Scripture and that prayer of Nehemiah's, especially last week's, in the midst of building that wall when they're being mocked and ridiculed by the the other kings. And this prayer throughout the Psalms, and it's Jesus' prayer too through the garden. Oh God, right? Don't let me be put to shame for trusting in you. That continual cry out to the Lord. Don't let me be put to shame. I trust in you. We now know that that can never happen. We can never be put to shame for trusting in God. Because we've been given that new identity. We've been clothed in righteousness. Everything's been changed that now we get to pray and enter into prayer with very different motivations, very different selves as we pray. And I think this is important for us to understand that prayer is just like every other aspect of our life. It's informed and it comes out of the gospel. Prayers, if they don't come out of the gospel, are going to be self-seeking, haphazard, like we talked about, you know, really motivated out of guilt or out of fear. That was most of my prayer life. It was motivated out of guilt or fear or really just the feeling of obligation. I should do these things, especially if I'm supposed to be so spiritual that everyone thinks I am. I should be praying. And so I'm trying to live up to some model or be something that I know I should do. And if I don't, then I'm letting people down. I'm letting God down. But if the gospel is true, I have a new standing before God where he looks upon me, he looks upon you and says, right, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. I find no fault in them. Okay, now I pray in this new identity, a son that's fully pleasing to his father, and I get to ask this father for things. It's different. And like anything, though, in the world, it's going to take some effort and time to pray this way and to learn to pray this way. It's going to take practice. It's going to take failures and successes. But thankfully, because of the gospel, I don't lose hope because of my failures and successes in prayer. So I think a lot of times with prayer, especially sermons about prayer or talks about prayer, you feel like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. All right, this will be the week. I'm going to really get my prayer life in order. And I'm sorry, God, that I haven't gotten it yet. And it's like, well, why would I? <laughs> why, why do we think that prayer should just work that way? It's like anything in life, these disciplines, these things, they, it's going to come through failure it's going to come through effort. It's developing habit. It's developing muscles that we're not used to using, right? And we, we have to start using those things. And so we need to learn. And I think there's a couple of things that can help us as we learn to pray more. The first is that our prayers need to be informed by Scripture, right? If you're looking for your prayer life, and we, we need our prayer life to be more consistent to be more kingdom-focused, to pray more like Nehemiah. I mean, if we want to see this renewal happen in our lives, in our families, in the world, we need to pray. We need to pray more kingdom-minded. But we need to be able to be informed in our prayers through Scripture. Tim Keller has this quote about, you know, we speak only to the 
to the degree that we are spoken to. Right? When you think about like little kids, we know this as parents. Like the words that we hear, they hear, are the word that informs what the words that they speak. Well, if we're not informed by Scripture, if I'm not hearing Scripture, the words of Scripture, the promises of God, right? Like how can Nehemiah pray this way? He has got the law in front of him. He is meditating on the Pentateuch day and night. He knows what God has promised. It's not informed by a podcast. It's not informed by scriptural music. It's from the word. He reads the word, and that word he prays. This has got to become, our, our language and our ability to pray has got to become deeper and richer. And it's only going to happen as our language is formed by really encountering scripture. Because that experience of prayer can be very exposing, right? Because some of us, I mean, obviously, I think everyone has experienced that. Oh, Stacy, you want to take a lap? <laughs> Turn on the motion light on that side. There you go. Thank you, Stacy. Our, you know, because our prayer life, you know, when you, when you actually sit down and try to pray, it can be very exposing, where you either just run out of things to say in a few minutes, or you ramble on and on and on about just everyone's life, and it kind of turns into a gossip session or something, you know, where it's not very directed. We need a better language in prayer for them to be consistent and to reflect this kingdom. And we have all the resources we need to do that, from just praying and reading through the Psalms, Paul's prayers, Jesus's prayers. It's really endless. And the other aspect that we really need is we need to develop these habits, we need, as a people, we need to grow consistently in our prayer life. If we're going to experience God's renewal, we need to develop the habit of kingdom prayer. It's got to become part of what we do. Which means, as individuals, as house churches, as a broad church, we need to reevaluate when we pray and how we're praying. Because it's not that we don't pray. We actually pray quite a bit. And I mean, through the week, there's always prayers being uttered by Twin Cities Church every day, even in a formal setting, if it's house churches or classes on Saturdays. You know, we pray four times on Sunday morning. You know, we're praying as people. And you may pray in your daily life. You may have prayers as a regular component to it. But we need to reevaluate those prayers. How are we praying? What are we praying for? And we need to start to develop these muscles those who have gone before us describe a rich and full prayer life as something that's hard won, right? Not something that came easily, right? And it, but there's great hope in that too. Just I was rereading that Tim Keller book on prayer. You know, he, I don't know how old he is now, but he was saying that too, that you know, for him, prayer, it was never easy. And he feels like he's just getting it now in his like 60s. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't, and that's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to get it figured out. We don't have to pray perfectly. We don't have to unlock the magic formula to pray, to please God, or for him to do this renewal or these works. We can just pray, which helps us then to kind of fight off that fear of legalism that's also running in our hearts. I don't want to create a work. I don't want to have to do something to try to earn. We can't just mistake right, effort, efforts to change or efforts to grow as an effort to earn. If we have the gospel, we know we can't earn anything. But it doesn't mean I don't desire, <clears throat> excuse me, desire to please my Father. 
because I've been given everything, that actually inspires me more, right, to enter into fellowship or communion with, with, with God. We've been set free for a life honoring God, a life without fear or regret, shame, a life of humility and joy. And we start by trying. We really do. But not as a people that just are hoping for things, wishing that God is going to do something. Maybe he'll do some work. Maybe he's going to change me. Maybe he'll change my neighbors. Maybe he'll change our communities. Maybe he's going to do something. But rather, right, we pray as children of the king who know their father and who know that their father loves them and hears them, who doesn't expect them to get it all right, but rather who is just eager for them to ask and invites them in. There's that famous kind of quote about like, you know, who gets away with waking up a king in the middle of the night to ask for something? Only a child can get away with that. And that's the access that we have and the standing that we have. We enter into the, with this presence with the Father with no fear, no guilt, no shame. That's been removed from us. And we've been clothed in righteousness. We've been clothed in the royal robe. We now enter into, the, into this presence with the king fully confident that he hears us and he loves us and he was eager for us to just ask him for things. And so we pray. And so as a people, as a church, this work of gospel renewal that God is doing around us and in us, he's invited us to join him in this work. And we're never going to experience that, though, gospel renewal or do our part faithfully unless we really pray, unless prayer becomes a consistent component to who we are and to what we do. Historically, every moment of big gospel renewal or revivals across the world are always accompanied by people entering into these this gospel prayers, these kingdom prayers, dedication, like Nehemiah, day and night, fasting and prayer. If we, if we want to see this change, if you want to see that change starting in you and in your life and in your family and with those around you, we have to pray. But not as a people without hope, but as a people with hope and with this identity in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us now.